Okay, this is the last uh, part of Revelation chapter 6, the sixth seal, where the opening of it pours out all sorts of things uh, upon the world, upon the land, upon the area, and we are covering it through Matthew 24, chapter 24, where Jesus is talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and says to them at verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words to you apostles about all this shall not pass away. And we talked about that last week. Um, The old physical Jerusalem was in its last days and would soon be gone. And in its place, a new Jerusalem, uh, a new spiritual city, which is from above. Understand the old Jerusalem is on the earth, terra firma. The new Jerusalem is from above on high. And Paul even calls that new Jerusalem the mother of us all, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That was about to come and be introduced. Uh, What did Paul mean when he said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, remember, he spoke around and in the regular Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. And so this speaks of a, uh, not of a physical Jerusalem restored, uh, it was spiritual. We have no idea now who real Jews are and who real Jews aren't because the genealogies have been wiped out. And It doesn't really matter though, because in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, male or female, bond or free, all are of him in Christ. So where is the new Jerusalem? The writer of Hebrews, he says in uh, chapter 12, verse 22, but you are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly. And if you get that mixed up and you think there's gonna be a new earthly terra firma, Jerusalem rebuilt, restored, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you got it wrong. So the writer of Hebrews says, but you've come to Mount Sinai unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the just men made perfect. So this has nothing to do with a new brick and mortar, restoration, repatriation, Zionism. All of that stuff are ways for people to take New Jerusalem and make it a brick and mortar. But it's clear that it's a heavenly place that we are citizens of by the Spirit. Uh, Christ did something better than give us a dusty brick city. He established something better and it was no longer tied to the physical of a physical people, a physical priesthood, a physical genealogy, or a physical nation. Speaking to Jewish converts uh, to Christianity, the writer of Hebrews reminds them in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, he says, for here we have no continuing city. So he's talking to them then, and he tells them, here we don't have a continuing city a Jerusalem that we rely upon. That's not our place, right? But we seek one to come. 
we seek a continuing city to come to us, meaning the new Jerusalem that would fall uh, when Christ had finished all things that were before him. So when Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, within that generation, by the way, which he said in the verse previously, he was not speaking of a literal heaven and a literal earth as zealous futurists love to imply, uh, but he was speaking of everything related to that world. Heaven and earth related to that world will pass away, and I'm gonna prove it to you if you doubt that. He was preparing his people for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness by and through faith. That is the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not, he was talking about the heaven and earth of the old economy. So let's just put another nail in the coffin of heaven and earth futurist mess. In Isaiah, you should turn to this. It's in, where is it in Isaiah? I don't have the reference. Oh boy, I'm sorry. I'll get that for you if you're interested. Uh, There's a fascinating set of passages. Listen to what it says. It says, But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, thou art my people. Now this was in Isaiah, and God is saying in Isaiah that I may plant, that I'm going to plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. And that's in the book of Isaiah. So we know he's not speaking of the creation. He's speaking of something that is Uh, metaphorical. And and when he says, I'm going to plant the heavens and lay foundations and say to Zion, you are my my people. I'm telling you this passage to help illustrate the Hebrew writing style for one. But here God is saying that he brought Israel through the Red Sea and then through Sinai and he put his words in their mouths by giving them the law. And then he established them as his people. And in doing this, God says the line that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. He is suggesting that this is a special heavens that will, and the special foundation of this for my people, okay? We all know he literally planted the heaven and laid the foundations of the earth in Genesis, so this is figurative language of what he says he's going to do for the nation of Israel, specifically. That in calling the nation of Israel out for his purposes, God is figuratively or spiritually planning a new heaven for them and a new earth. So when Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, he is talking about what God said he had planted for the nation of Israel. He had planted them a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus is saying, those are going to pass away, but my words are not going to pass away. Do you get it? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.31. He said, the fashion of this world passes away. So when he said heaven and earth will pass away here in Matthew, and Paul says the fashion of this world is passing away. And he's talking about that economy, that oikonomia. So the fashion of the world that he was in, the nation of Israel, Judaism, 
all the law, all the prophets, genealogies, temples, passing away. John says something similar in 1 John 2.17. He says, and the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So both Paul and John were speaking of the world and the fashion and the economy and the heaven and earth of that former economy passing away, but they were not speaking of the natural world. They were not speaking of literal heaven and literal earth passing away. It was the heavens and earth created when God called the nation of Israel out and gave them. That was their world and all of its fashions. Um, so why? Because God is bringing in through Christ a more glorious way, a better way, as the writer of Hebrews is always talking about. God would, in this better way, he was going to write his laws upon our minds and hearts, you see, through the spiritual kingdom of the spiritual heavenly Jerusalem that we would be members of, and he would be our God and we would be his people subjectively, not through another system of religion. The system of religion days uh, epitomized by Jerusalem were done for, right? So speaking of the last days of the former system, Speaking of the last days of the former system being replaced by latter days of subjective relationship spiritual system, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.11, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. So the old way was good, glorious, he says. If it was, certainly what is replacing it is even better. John put it this way in describing what remains, what it looks like. He said in 1 John 2, 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. So John was saying that age of shadows and types and figures and darkness and obscurity is gone. The new age of light now shines. So way back then, the whole former system was utterly getting ready to completely vanish away. Paul said, it's about ready to vanish, he said. And he was speaking of the literal destruction of everything under that heaven and that earth. Gonna pass away. And... Um, the new has no vestiges of the old or the former. Um, the new is spiritual, heavenly, based in grace, not the law whatsoever, based in faith first, followed by love, faith manifested by love. So church and church playing and using the New Testament as a new law to beat each other up with or to plan our churches in brick and mortar was never the plan, never there. He writes his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds, and no man needs to teach his neighbor saying, lo here, lo there, listen to me. We don't need to because it's written on us. Now, let me end all this discussion here with Hebrews 8.8. 8. And you may wanna to turn to Hebrews 8.8 8 because those here and at home, you wanna know these passages um, because the writer says plainly that the former Jerusalem the former law, the covenant's religion demands, he explains what that's all about. And he says, speaking of the former economy, for finding fault with them, okay? 
Anybody who goes to Jerusalem to seek the real place of religion and everything else and all that they were about and hoping that they can tap into what Jesus really established there in, that, in the dusty streets of that beautiful city, Paul says in Hebrews 8, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And, and let me pause there and explain that Paul clearly shows that anybody who is of faith is of the house of Israel. So he's talking to us and to them, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. That's you, that's believers. After those days, saith the Lord, I will, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me my people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first old now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Vanish away, Paul says. What was old? All of the former stuff, vanish. Yet still we speak of it as if it still has material, even spiritual application. Ready to vanish away. Old, wax old, decays, ready to vanish. So before we move on to conclude, Matthew 24 and its connection to Revelation chapter six. We're gonna hit Revelation chapter seven, yay, next week. Um, let me drop a few more quotes on you. I've been inserting these quotes from early church leaders and fathers about the end days and when Jesus' second coming was. Well, Jonathan Edwards, he's a famous uh, preacher, 1736. He's the author of a, of a speech called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And it's used by Protestants all over to scare the hell, sorry, pun intended, scare the hell out of people and get them to see that the angry God, he is wrathful and vengeful. And if you're a sinner in his hands, look out. Well, that's who Jonathan Edwards was. But listen to what he said regarding the second coming. This is from a guy who uh, he talked in other areas completely different than at least I would. He says, it's evident that when Christ speaks of his coming, his being revealed, his coming in his kingdom or his kingdom coming, he has respect to his appearing in those great works of his power, justice and great, which should be in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what Jonathan Edwards, any Protestant here who's cut their teeth on Protestantism knows Jonathan Edwards and, the, and sinners in the hands of an angry God might be familiar with his name and other extraordinary provinces in which attended it, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem. R.C. Sproul, a modern day guy, five point Calvinist, don't agree with him in his ideas of soteriology, but in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, page 158 says, quote, the coming of Christ in 70 AD was a coming in judgment on the Jewish nation 
indicating the end of the Jewish age and the fulfillment of a day of the Lord. Now he hedges there, did you catch it? A fulfillment of a day of the Lord. Uh, a preterist would say a fulfillment of the day of the Lord. He goes on and says, Jesus really did come in judgment at this time, fulfilling his prophecy in the Olivet Discourse. That's what we're studying is the Olivet Discourse, of Matthew 24. So what scroll says is everything that it says here in Matthew 24 was fulfilled by Christ in Jerusalem. His hedges, this was a day of the Lord. Uh, as a side note, let me say, says R.C. Sproul, um, he's gonna come again, right? That's his out because he just can't believe that there wouldn't be a third coming for us. But he makes clear that all the signs that are in scripture spoken of by Jesus about his coming are fulfilled from the Olivet Discourse. And that's R.C. Sproul. So thus far in Matthew 24, we have read through Jesus' words up to verse 35, where he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. And up to this point, Jesus has answered two of the three questions. When shall these things be? Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark. Peter, James, John, and Andrew have asked him. When shall these things be? He's answered this in the first 33 passages. And what shall be the sign of your coming? He has covered that in these passages. Uh, we note that they did not ask, when shall be the day of your coming, but the sign, okay? So when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming, which he has abundantly delivered? And then he asks, then they ask him the third question, and the end of the age, okay? When will be these three things? Uh, now, it seems at this point pretty clearly that Jesus at this point at verse 36 starts to talk about the end of the world as the King James puts it, or the end of the age as the Greeks would write it, the end of everything Jewish, all right? He says, but of that day, verse 36, singular, meaning that specific day and hour, no man, no, nor the angels of heaven, but my father only knows, okay? So notice a change in focus compared to the previous verses. In the previous verses, when he was answering the first two questions, he said, for instance, in verse 19, woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, in those days, the days when the signs would be coming, the days when, uh, uh, when, when, when these things would be. He uses those days in verse 22 in chapter 24. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect safe, those days shall be shortened. He speaks in terms of those days, right? But in, uh, and in verse 29, and immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars. So suddenly he has been talking about those days and suddenly here in 36, he speaks of that day. There's, that's, there's a reason for that because he's answering their third question. When will be the end of everything? That was their third question. And so he tells them of that day, when all things that we have talked about that would be signs of his arrival actually occurs, he says, no man knows the hour or the day, uh, not even the angels of heaven, verse 36, but my father only, all right? 
So not only does he get more specific here, Jesus admits something to his disciples, which is often overlooked, and it's explained through a giant structure of uh, theological thinking to make us understand what Jesus meant. And Jesus says, no man knows the hour or day, but my father only. In John 14, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, you have heard how I have said to you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto my father. For my father is greater than I. So he says his father is greater than him here in, in John 14, 28. And here he tells his, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew that he doesn't know the day. No man knows the day except his father. And yet in uh, creedal Trinitarianism, we have the statement that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal, co-equal, no difference between them at all. But here in John, he says, the Father's greater than I. Now, the theologians step in and they say, well, we can explain that. You see, he was and this and this, but this is what Jesus says. I like what Jesus says about things. And he also says, no man knows the hour of day, my father only. So they weren't equal in knowledge. They did not, Jesus did not know the hour or day, or he was not telling the truth. He was being humble is what some would say. He wasn't letting them know that he had all the knowledge that the father had. I like his words. The word for greater here, what he says in John 14, 28, means it can mean larger and it can mean older but it couldn't mean larger or older if they're co-equal and co-eternal. So it couldn't have that application. But in, let me think here, 40 plus times it's used, 98% uh, of those times it means superior. My father is superior to me. And so then we could go down and say, well, he was in flesh. That's why the father was superior to him. And, but what was in him was equal to. And I get all the arguments. I'm just pointing out that when it came to him knowing the hour and the day that his apostles said, when is it all gonna end? He says, no one knows. Can't tell you. So I don't understand that creedal Trinitarian belief of co-equality uh, uh, co when Jesus himself says he doesn't know. I don't understand it. Other people do. Uh, good friends of mine who are great believers. Um, uh, Matt Slick, who, who we're still good friends with, and et cetera, et cetera. He can explain why, but I still don't get it. Maybe you do. Listen to John 12, 44, 50, where Jesus cries, he that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me sees him that sent me. I am come as a light unto the world. And whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but of the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment what I should say, what I should speak, and I know that his commandment is life everlasting, whatsoever I speak therefore, even as the Father said unto me, this is what I speak. So scriptures often lighten, uh, liken true and living, they liken the true and living God to love, light, and fire. 
The true and living, the invisible God is love. He is light. He is fire. And we have long said that his light and fire and love filled his only human son, Christ Jesus. That's who he was. His only begotten, his only made, his only human son was filled with the uh, invisible God fully. I accept that. In any case, we can see here that Jesus did not know the exact time. Only his father knew it. So I believe that the book of Revelation is God's revelation to Christ telling him now, this is what's gonna go down. And he's revealing it to John and saying, this is what's gonna happen, I'm coming quickly. He doesn't tell him the day, but Jesus has given the new revelation of what is going to happen here on earth to wrap up that former economy. And uh, so, I can't tell you the exact hour or day, Jesus says, but verse 37, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So answering the third question, when is all this thing gonna end, which will end with your coming, the first line in 35, Jesus says, these are the signs of his coming and the end of the age. I believe that they were exactly that, signs. At verse 36, having described the sign of his coming, he reveals, he can't say it's this day and this hour, but he reveals what they should be looking for. In verse 37, 39, he warns them, remain alert. Stay alert because the day of his actual coming will be like the day right before it started raining in the days of Noah. People will be doing regular things. They'll be playing softball and celebrating the 24th of July. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and getting engaged. And nobody was aware at that time in Noah's day that the rain was gonna start falling. I wonder where the first drop fell. First drop right on the nose of somebody. It fell and then it didn't stop. And so that's what he's saying. So shall the coming, not the signs anymore. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the next verses are rejected by many traditional preterists um, as meaning anything but the taking away of evil people. Let's read them to you. Jesus says in verse 40 uh, through 42, then shall two be in the field and one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill and one shall be taken and the other left. By the way, how many women do you know are grinding at mills these days? Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. So he's giving them all the signs, and now he's talking about specifically, this is what it's going to look like. Now, I am of the personal opinion that this speaks to 
the taking up or rapture of believers in Jesus' day that the apostles have been saying, he's coming to get us, hang on, endure, he's coming, hang on. I believe that's what he's talking about. Two will be in the field, one will be taken and saved. Two will be grinding at a mill, one will be taken and saved, but watch because you don't know the hour when it's gonna happen, right? Mercifully, God has given John on the Isle of Patmos this revelation to describe the beginning to end of the things that are quickly going to happen to the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor. And so mercifully, he comes back and gives another revelation of what to look for. And this was in a language that they were understand. Were all believers taken in 70 AD? I don't know, I doubt it. God always has had a remnant. I mean, who was gonna carry forward and make sure things were carried forward from the gospel message? Maybe the Gentile converts that Paul reached in Asia Minor remained. Maybe some Jews remained. I don't know, he came for his church. The apostles had promised all the people, he will come and save us from this coming destruction. Uh, maybe John was left too. All we can see is Jesus has plainly described the signs of his coming and he is speaking of one being left and one being taken in the context of it. This is what will happen at the end when it all wraps up. Taking scripture plainly, it seems to me that he was describing to four of his 12 apostles, he was saying this to them, that one would be taken, another would be left. What we can say definitely is that to take these passages and apply them in our day totally ignores the setting, totally ignores it. And it just, just scans over two women grinding at the mill. And, and, and Jesus would say two women were at the coffee uh, pot at Apple but he says two women are grinding at the mill. It's just the context of it tells us when it's gonna be. At verse 43, Jesus now offers these four apostles a parable in association with the third question, what's gonna be the wrapping up of all this? He says, but know this, know this. If the good men of a house had known the time that a thief would break in, he would have watched, at, during that time, he would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken up. So he gives these three apostles this parable. If you own a house and you are told, hey, a burglar is gonna break in at 11 p.m., the good men of the house would sit there and he would watch to make sure he could stop that from occurring. So therefore, he says in verse 44, in light of this parable, he warns the four, be you also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the son of man cometh. So he has told them, listen, a good guy, if he knows the hour is gonna watch, I'm telling you to watch. Be like that good guy, all right? Now, even that in and of itself was applicable to their day and age. To assign that to every single year, which is almost 2,000 years, where people have taken this and said, we have to keep watching, we have to, we have to read our Bible with a newspaper in our hands, we have to keep watching, come to church and let me tell you as your pastor, you better watch, you better be prepared, he's coming. It ignores the mercy of God, who has, it doesn't keep us in bondage that way. He set us free, he set people so free, he gave those people a revelation to tell him when it was happening. So to me, the Lord is saying, you know the signs, I've told them to you, look for them. But remember, things are gonna appear really normal, like they did in Noah's day. 
they're going to be marrying and getting engaged and all these things before the rain falls. And at this point, he begins to instruct on being good servants to his four apostles, on living up what they were called to do for his name's sake. He says, watch, look. And he asks, verse 45, who then is a faithful servant? Peter, James, John, Andrew, who then is a faithful servant and wise? Whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, finds so doing. So in other words, Jesus seems to say, which of you being, will be found faithful as a wise servant? Which of you who have been made ruler over my church will do my will, will listen to what I've said, will feed the household, will be seen as a blessed servant because they're watching for these things to appear and be aware. Verily I say unto you, he says at verse 47, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. And then he gives him another warning at verse 48. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. So he tells the four guys there, the evil servant will say the Lord is delaying his coming. That's to them sitting there Mount of Olives. He didn't delay. He didn't mislead them. An evil servant would say the Lord delays his coming. Now, again, 2,000 years later, we open our Bible to preach end times. And I say to you, an evil person says that the Lord delays his coming. He's not delaying. Don't be evil. Realize he's not delaying his coming. Forgetting that 2,000 years have passed. But reasonably trusting Jesus' words, these make sense. He says, the Lord delays his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So to those four uh, brethren, that's what he tells them. Don't be like that, be looking. It's obviously a stern warning. Don't rest on your laurels refuse to eat, drink, and be merry and say, he's delaying, don't worry about it. You are my apostles, share that I, my coming is imminent. So that's Matthew 24, along with insights taken from Mark 13 and Luke 21, over the teaching of Jesus with his four disciples on the Mount of Olives about when will these things happen, what's the sign of thy coming, and when will be the end of this age, right? In my opinion, the Lord would have been flat out misleading, uh, frankly incorrect. And I would have to agree with C.S. Lewis who said it's the most embarrassing script passage in scripture uh, if, if, uh, if what he was saying was, and it didn't happen the way he said it, did, it would. And you can see that it was to them when he kept saying you and ye, not they and them, you, ye, watch, you, Peter, James, uh, John, Andrew. Let me, I've written on the board four sets of passages that I didn't cover in this, and I'm gonna wrap up with covering these before we get out of here in this heat, and, uh, and then we'll move on to chapter seven of Revelation, verse by verse next week. Matthew 16, 27, 28, clearly says something reasonable and logical about his return. There Jesus says, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That is why throughout Revelation and all the epistles, especially the latter epistles, the apostles are telling the believers, 
hang on, love, be of faith. You must endure this. Uh, so we have Jesus saying there in Matthew 16, 27, because the Lord is coming to reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus said it to them. Okay, was he wrong? Did he not understand? Is it meant to be something different? Uh, pretty straightforward. There are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Um, do you know how futurists explain this? They say Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost. There are some standing here that will not taste of death until the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. That is the futurist answer to that passage. Nowhere in scripture is the Holy Spirit called the Son of Man. Nowhere. And, but it's the only way to explain this passage unless you wave the white flag and say, scripture is clear, he came in, in, in that time. But it won't be admitted by them. So they say the Holy Spirit falling on Pentecost is the fulfillment of this. None of those who were standing there died until the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. You use your mind. You try to figure out how they came about at that instead of the natural interpretation where Jesus said plainly, listen, there's coming you aren't gonna die until you see me come in the clouds, coming in my kingdom. By the way, to add uh, some flame to this powder keg of a passage, let me give you a few additional bits of information about them. When we read in the King James, verse 27, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man shall come in his glory with his Father, with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works. We don't get that much out of that passage from the English translation. But if you go to the Greek and we ask the question, when does Jesus say he'll return? Our eyes are illuminated. Why? Because when the first line says, For the Son of Man shall come, this is that word we've mentioned, mellow, before. And it does not allow in the Greek language for a long period of time. This is why R.C. Sproul and men like uh, Sinner in the Hand of the Angry God and Athanasius and Tertullian all taught that the second coming was the destruction of Jerusalem of Jesus. Those are citations you can look. Um, the literal translation in the New Testament says, for the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father. That's what mellow means, is about to not shall. Uh, if Jesus' words were fulfilled at Pentecost, Paul never would have said in Titus 2.3 that we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, one last important note on that, the phrase coming of the Son of Man or the words coming tied to the line Son of Man. Son of Man tied to that line is only in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, not even in John. Never anywhere after Jesus' earthly life and his ascension is the phrase son of man used in connection with Christ. Son of man was used by him and a few others describing him when he was on the earth. But when he had ascended, son of God is always used. Son of man while he walked the earth, son of God when he, uh, after Jesus ascended. 
So the apostles always referred to him as the son of God, and only in Acts is the son of man used, and it's not in connection with, uh, it's only in connection with him standing at the right hand of the Father. So I point this out because Jesus, when he speaks of his return, he always uses the title in the gospels, son of man, son of man. And because uh, he was going to return as a son of man for his brethren, the Jews. And this is how he would have referred to himself. Even to Caiaphas, um, he referred to himself as the son of man coming in the clouds, not as the son of God. You will see the son of man, Caiaphas, coming in the clouds. So however, when Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles writes, he always called him the son of God because he had ascended and taken his rightful place at the right hand of God. So I say this to have another evidence that Jesus came back to the house of Israel, his brethren, as the son of man. There's no reference of his return to the rest of the world uh, as anything but the son of God. My daughter Cassidy pointed this something out to me uh, about the Christian church today relative to the church of old. Um, and I, I, tell me what you mean. She says, well, the Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah to show up on the scene and a lot of Christians today are still waiting for the Messiah to show up on the scene. We are acting like them. We are doing the same thing. We're waiting for him when he's already come. And the scripture proves it. But we just turn a blind eye to it because it doesn't fit how we've been trained. It's a fantastic point. Uh, not long ago, I had an ardent believer of futurism tell me that uh, she's convinced Jesus is coming back to establish a literal physical kingdom here upon this earth that that's why he's coming back. And that's a very LDS belief, by the way. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. And so the LDS are doing everything they can to purify the world, be salt and light to the world with physical edifices so Christ can come back and reign over his physical kingdom. But I remembered what Cassidy's insight was. And I said, and that position was the very same way the Jews in Jesus' day viewed the Messiah. He was coming to establish an earthly kingdom and they missed it entirely. They missed it. They couldn't even see it because they didn't think that Jesus was coming with a spiritual message. They thought he was coming with a kingdom now message. And, and so we still think he's coming back with a kingdom now on earth message too at his return. It's just not the case. Let's look at a unique discussion that uh, Jesus has with Peter. We're almost done in John 21 on the board, 21, uh, 21 through 23. Let's pick it up. It says, then Peter turning about sees the disciple whom Jesus loves following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayed thee? Peter uh, saith, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? I'm not reading that real well, but you know the situation. Jesus has, uh, they're on the shore, they're eating fish together, and Peter wants to know what's gonna happen with John, right? And Jesus said, if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me, Peter. Get your nose out of John's business. You follow me. What is it if he stays until I come? Then went this saying, John writes, abroad among the uh, disciples that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not to him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? So John clarifies, a big myth got up that said John isn't gonna ever die and John clarifies it right there and says, 
He didn't say I wasn't gonna die. He just said, what is it to you, Peter, if I live until Jesus returns? This automatically implies that his return would be within a reasonable period of time, not 2,000 years plus later. In fact, a rumor was spread that the disciple would not experience death, but John clarifies the matter and he says, Jesus didn't say I wouldn't die, again to reiterate, but he said, what is it if I stay until he comes? So the idea had to be reasonable that he was going to come within a period of time that John could have remained alive. I don't think Jesus is using hyperbole and saying, what is it to you if John stays alive for 2,000 years? You get it? It was in context. John could be alive until I come back, Peter. What does that matter to you? And Peter didn't say, how is it, Lord, that John can live for 2,000 years or more? He doesn't say that. He fully knows that it's possible for John to be alive until Jesus comes back because Peter knew he was coming back within a generation. In Matthew 26, we read of Jesus standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, something I just mentioned. And this is the account at verse 63, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, Thou, Caiaphas, has said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Okay, I want to be fair here because it would really be easy to, to twist this to my advantage. First of all, it's a bold statement. And it would have no wiggle room at all to prove Jesus' return except for two points. In the English, we have Jesus telling Caiaphas that he would personally see Jesus sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, but the Greek doesn't support that. I'd love it to, but it doesn't. But what it does is it, it describes, well, let me reread the verse with the proper Greek tense. Jesus said unto him, Thou, singular meaning, Caiaphas, has said, nevertheless, I say unto you, plural. So he says, Caiaphas, to you, thou, it's singular, but I say unto you, plural, meaning everyone you represent, everybody you're over and reign over, Caiaphas. So it doesn't mean him personally, it means the reign of Caiaphas and the people there. I would love to say that the, it would mean thou, uh, has said, nevertheless, I say unto you, and I wish that was singular too, because that would just lay it flat. Unfortunately, Caiaphas died in 37 AD. So he would, that would have proven the whole thing wrong. Caius did not live until 70 AD. So uh, I had to clear that up so that you would understand Caiaphas, the second word there is speaking of Caiaphas as a representative of these people. The plural of you will see me coming in my kingdom. Finally, Matthew 10, beginning at verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak for it shall be given to you in that same hour that you, what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child and the child shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 
But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. This is to the apostles. It is not to the masses. Flee to another. For verily I say unto you, and this is the applicable part, you shall have not gone over the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus' words again. He makes it clear. You, and this is why all the apostles wrote as if anticipating his return was imminent, at hand, on its way. We just had a brother who uh, in the morning, his name's Warren, he was an ardent futurist. In fact, he almost didn't come to campus anymore because he could not stand the leanings I had toward this view. And uh, he hung on and he hung on and it was difficult. And he, um, he just read a book by Glenn Hill who was on our show a few weeks back. And he walked in uh, two Sundays ago and said, I was wrong. I'm dead wrong. I've been wrong the whole time. I put on blinders because I wanted to believe everything I had been taught about it, and I was wrong. The thing I share this with you, I share this with you because when you do allow yourself to see what the scripture says, it frees you. And the truth sets us free. Falsehood, we can believe things and be in bondage, but it's the truth that will set you free. If and when you come to understand what it's saying here, you will be freed and know it was the truth. If, if understanding this puts you into greater bondage, then you know that it is probably a falsehood. Don't believe it. But if your eyes are willing to see the possibility, you will then be in, begin to understand what Christianity means ever since 70 AD and how the word applies to us as we study it together as seekers of the truth. The revised version of that last passage, I only have three lines, three paragraphs left, says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say unto you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The TCNT translation says, but when they persecute you in one town, escape to the next, for I tell you, you will not have come to the end of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And the Weymouth's literal translation says, for I solemnly tell you that you will not have gone round about all the towns of Jerusalem before the Son of Man comes. Again, was Jesus wrong or have we been wrong all along? I would strongly suggest the latter. On to Revelation chapter seven, it doesn't talk about one of the seals. And then Revelation chapter eight is the seventh seal that explains all the things that we have been talking about with the wrapping up of that age. Questions, comments? Thank you, sister. And John, Patrico and John. So, Pluto'sm lately has been making a lot more sense to me because I, uh, I'll read something to you. It's in the book of Hebrews. Okay. And so, if we, if we, we pretend you're getting this letter from an apostle, you're in that age, okay? Okay. And the mindset you would, if you were receiving this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto him spoken unto us by his son, whom he had the pointed heir of all things. Yeah. So if I was receiving that letter, I'd be like, hath in these last days, okay. Yeah, perfect. Sure. A so. great passage, Patrick, to support that. Mm -hmm. Has in these last days. 
Excellent. And we are going over to John, Stephen. Yeah, in many of these Bibles that I have, it says that, uh, uh, let's see, Matthew's 24, 26 is not in the Greek. That passage is not in the Greek. Read it for us. It said, well, it says, uh, but no one knows the date or the hour when the end will be. Not even the angels know, nor even the son. Only the Father. I, I, we got to search that out to yeah, see. Yeah, and then down here it says many manuscripts omit this phrase. Mm -hmm. So then it goes on to say they don't know who the Father is. They don't know where he's at. They don't know how he controls everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to look to see because to me to remove that text yeah. or to say it is not in most of the manuscripts, John, suggests to me that someone didn't like the fact that Jesus is not co-equal, co-eternal. No, I think what it tells me is that um, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. He's, uh, tell, he's telling everybody about the end times and he doesn't know nothing about the end times. That's what it tells me. Oh, you know. it, that who doesn't know? Jesus. It, oh yeah. Because he doesn't know only the Father. Right. And so you're saying it was a spurious translation. Yeah, because he yeah. says he's in the bosom of the Father. Yeah, he, yeah. And the Father deals everything with words. Everything is done with words. Right. Uh, I would words. be willing to make a public wager with you. No. Let's wager. I'll be willing to bet that the majority translations that are reliable uh, include that passage and that it's spurious translations that have removed it. Yeah, it says that the uh, Latin Vulgate holds those passages, but not the Greek. Well, we'll see. I'll, I'll go to do my homework this week and we'll see. We didn't bet on anything though. Oh. <laughs> anything else? All right, let's get out of this heat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us in our walk. Help us to endure this, this um, existence with its joys and its pains, its sorrows. And I just pray that you will be with all of us as we exit here and move forward to be Christians and realize that this life is a vapor on a, on a glass and we will be with you and forever and ever. And let us have that eternal view of this existence and everything else. Help us to not divide uh, with anybody in here or out that has, have differing views. These aren't hills to die on, not part of the good news actually, just part of Christian history that we study and read from your word to understand. Open our eyes, bless those who are suffering, help, those, help our sister who is facing, uh, she has been diagnosed and, uh, with cancer and we just pray that uh, the, the inspection of the cancer, which we're waiting on, will uh, come back uh, positive and that uh, you will bless her and her family and give them peace and comfort during this time of waiting. We seek you, Lord, and need you, and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Show me your ways.